News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 24th. It's show number 45 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll be talking with Todd Zola, our Talk with Todd commentator, about park effects on traded players, and in general, and more. And we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at the Aramis Ramirez trade and much more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson, looking at the Scott Casimir trade and more. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at Boston left-hander Eduardo Rodriguez, hosting Detroit righty Alfredo Simon. And Angels right-hander Andrew Heaney is at home for Texas righty Nick Martinez, plus other matchups. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the errors of in-season player valuation. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The trade winds are definitely blowing now. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. And it's always good to have you. Of course, the big news is we've already seen a few trades, and we saw a relatively big one, at least a relatively big name. Aramis Ramirez is traded from the Milwaukee Brewers to Pittsburgh. Aramis Ramirez going back to his old stomping grounds in Pittsburgh. And so the best thing about that trade for me is it gives Aramis Ramirez perhaps a chance to end his career in Pittsburgh, where he, where he started out. But you know, I don't think this trade is going to work nearly as well for Pittsburgh as they think it is. Aramis Ramirez is not having that great a year anyway, if you take a look at uh, overall what he's done. He's got 11 home runs, 42 RBIs, 247 batting average. Uh, so, you know, so-so for a guy who's fading. He's going to exceed last year's home run total probably. Uh, B.A. is down. But the, the going back to Pittsburgh is not going to help things much because the, the ballpark in Milwaukee inflates right-handed batter home runs by 33%. The ballpark in Pittsburgh depresses them by 42%. So you're looking at, what, a 75% decrease in, in home run power for that, that home park. Uh, and so uh, 35 of the uh, remaining 67 games are on the road. That makes 32 of them in uh, in Pittsburgh. So uh, I think a lot less Paris power for uh, Armis Ramirez uh, the rest of the way. Some of the other parks in that uh, National League Central uh, also not too helpful for, for home run hitters. Uh, St. Louis is a pretty big yard, but Cincinnati's small, so maybe it gets a little bit of benefit there. Yeah, but he, you know, he hasn't been doing much. He's, uh, the, uh, a run of 15 games at homer-friendly stadiums, including uh, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, and he managed only two home runs. So uh, I wouldn't expect too much out of him the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the way. Probably a, 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 certainly a, a good uh, place filler for the Pirates who've got infield problems, but... Uh, uh, don't expect any kind of a miraculous turnaround. In the past, uh, s- some of uh, Aramis Ramirez's big home run years were also characterized by relatively high walk rates for him in the you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 range. This year, only 5%. Last year, only 4 And that seems to have depressed his power. As we know that the walk rate does, it's, it's not that indicative of batting average, which a lot of people think it is. 
but it is indicative of power. And uh, if you're not walking a lot, it means you're not being very uh, discerning at the plate, shall we say, and waiting for a pitch you can drive. The last two years have been the lowest walk rates of his career. Uh, and so this last year was 4% and, and was the worst of his career. This year has not gotten better at 5%. It could be a situation where Pittsburgh's just trying to make the best of a bad situation. They lost Josh Harrison. He won't be back with a thumb injury, I think, till late August or early September. And then Jordy Mercer got hurt. He's out six weeks. So they slide Jung Ho Zhang over to shortstop from third. They were looking at Brent Morrell, but Aramis Ramirez looks like an upgrade. I think so. I think that's what they were trying to do was just to uh, to fill a gap in the, in the short term. Now, do we know anything about the prospects that Milwaukee gets in return? You know, I don't know a whole lot about those prospects. I, I don't uh, uh, a right-handed pitcher, uh, Jonathan Barrios, and I really don't know too much about him. For the balance of the season, we're looking at Aramis Ramirez pulling down another uh, six or seven home runs, maybe 25 RBIs and uh, a stolen base. His hit rate has been a little low, and so the projections at Baseball HQ are giving him credit for a 280-ish batting average, which might help. Yeah, it would. If his batting average came back up, that would certainly help. Over in Chicago, another piece of news, Jason Mott got his sixth save. Uh, Nick, does this mean Jason Mott is now firmly established as the Cubs' closer, or do they have anybody established as a, as a confirmed closer? He would appear to be the closer of the moment, certainly, in, uh, in Chicago with, uh, with, that, uh, with that save. Over the past month, he's had four saves and really pitched very well in the last 30 days. 0.79 ERA, 0.88 whip, 108 BPV over the last 30 days. So Jason Mott has pitched quite well over the last month. Now, looking overall at the season, it doesn't look nearly so good. Uh, his his uh, dom rate is down to about six strikeouts per nine innings, and uh, that only works if you don't walk anybody. Over the last month, his walk rate is uh, control rate 0.8. Uh, for the season, 2.4. Uh, pretty soon, those walks are going to come back to bite him. The other thing that's going to come back to bite Jason Mott, I think, is uh, he's he's just not allowing any home runs. He's allowed none over the last month, 0% home run per fly, 6% home run per fly for the season. Uh, that number is likely to regress. Uh, and with a guy who's uh, at this point basically a fly ball pitcher, that would not be a good thing. So uh, while Mott is in this groove, I think he's uh, he's going to do pretty well and they'll probably hang with him for a little while in Chicago. But uh, I don't. I, I would be real surprised if he closed out the season as the closer. The fly ball tilt is an interesting thing. April, May, June, he was uh, up around 50% fly balls, actually over in a couple of those months. This month in July, just 31%. And, of course, the question when you see something like that is, is it just a short-term variation, the kind of thing you expect from month to month? You know, they're relatively short periods. Or is it some kind of switch that he's made in his pitch mix or his approach or something like that? Because in July, 46% ground ball rate and only 31% fly ball rate, that's sustainable. That's really nice. And, uh, you know, if, if he could do, if he could keep doing that, he'd be in great shape. And the question is, as you said, the question is, is it something that, uh, is just a, a, a vagary of the moment? Did he do something and does he know what he did so he can keep it going at that, at that, at that particular rate? Or is he just in a groove? You know, when I was playing golf, I had one time I went out of the golf course and everything I hit was absolutely perfect. It was going out about 40 yards and then taking off. I had no idea what I was doing to make it do that. Uh, and of course, it regressed right back to my normal, uh, my normal hacking stroke. So you have to wonder whether he, if he's aware of what he's doing, then uh, he could sustain this kind of thing. Uh, that's the big question, I think. 
He has had a full year in 2011 where his ground ball rate was 44% and his fly ball rate 39, which is a little closer to what you'd like. Of course, you'd like to see 55 and 25 if, if you could arrange it. But he has done this before, so I wonder if he's recapturing some old magic in some way. Well, maybe so. That would certainly uh, certainly give him a better shot at retaining the closer role for a longer period of time. And in 2012, his big savior, he had 42 saves with a perfectly balanced 40-40 split on ground balls and fly balls. So it can be done, and he was firing it in there at 97 miles an hour. And his velocity is back up this year uh, to 95. Uh, that's, that's also at least a somewhat positive sign. It is indeed. So there are positive signs there. I think we just need to be perhaps a little skeptical at this point. And, and the other question becomes, I guess, is, is if you're a Hector Rondon owner, what do you do at this point? Uh, do you do you uh, jump ship and uh, head for Jason Mott on the waiver wire, or you know how do you how do you handle this particular situation? Uh, and I think my take on that right now would be you, you hang on to Hector Rondon. I mean the guy is pitching very well, a BPV of 115 for the season, a BPV of 141 for the last month. Uh, no reason really for him to lose the closer role. I mean his ERA in the past month is 0 0.71, uh, so. Just a, a manager whim at the moment as to who you give the ball to in the uh, in the closer situation, and so I would hang on to Hector Rondon. Uh, the guy is 27 years old. He's shown very good skills. Certainly a um, uh, a good chance that he will find himself back in the role uh, once uh, the the manager changes his uh, his whims. The BaseballHQ.com projection is for Jason Mott to have 10 saves, which is the lion's share coming down the stretch. But I think you're right. With this kind of skill set, low strikeouts, relatively high fly balls, if presuming he rebounds back to his uh, March, April, May, June type numbers, that uh, you know Jason Mott is only one bad outing away from losing the role again. And if, if he does, then Rondon with the superior skill set looks like he might draw in. Right, I think that's uh, very, very definitely. If, if I were going to, if I had Rondon in my roster, I might not mind picking up Mott uh, in the short term, but I would not dump Rondon to do it. We have a speculator column that used to be written just by Ray Murphy. Now it's a three-man team, including BaseballHQ.com uh, Director of News and Analysis Jock Thompson, who's also our uh, American League Market Watch analyst, and uh, he wrote a speculator column about 31-day surgers among starting pitchers. And this was an interesting concept. He looked at all the starting pitchers in uh, Major League Baseball, but only over their last 31 days, and came up with a bunch of names of guys who were pitching very well in that relatively short time span, maybe thinking there's a momentum play or something like that to be had. Uh, one of the names on the list, uh, Nick, was Chris Heston, of course, threw a no-hitter earlier this year and uh, made it to Jock's list of guys that might be intriguing. And almost threw another no-hitter earlier, earlier in the week, and you know, Chris Heston has been uh, a guy, if you got him on your roster, you're probably very excited to have Chris Heston, but... Jock sounds some warning notes about Chris Heston. If you look at what he's done in July, it's only four starts, but but things don't look quite as rosy. An ERA of 132 for July, which is not bad at all, but an XERA of 3.12. Uh, he's getting by on a very high ground ball rate, uh, and that certainly is helping him, but his dominance is down, was 8.9 in June, down to 5.3 in July. Um, that drops the command ratio. First pitch strikes have not been as good in July. You've got to wonder if he's beginning to wear down perhaps a little bit uh, as the season progresses. And so I would keep a close eye on Chris Heston. Not a guy I would dump right now, but not a guy I would hang on to uh, if somebody came to, to ask me for him in trade. 
Oh, for sure. If somebody came and asked for him in trade, I'd trade him in a heartbeat. Uh, 5.3 DOM, you mentioned uh, bringing his command ratio down under 2. And nowadays, Nick, we used to say that 2.0 was kind of a minimum of a command ratio, strikeouts to walks. He's at 1.8, and 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 really it should be 2.3, 2.4 is kind of a league standard now because of the increased strikeouts. This is not a good-looking skill set. No, it's not at all. I mean, the thing that is that is keeping Chris Heston as good as he is, is that very, very high ground ball rate. A ground ball rate uh, through April and June of 54%, a ground ball rate of 67% uh, in July. So uh, that's what's that's what's keeping him in the game and producing his excellent outings at this point. Uh, but the, the Dom rate is really concerning. He hasn't given up any home runs largely because of that uh, e- enormous ground ball rate, and also he plays in a pretty good park for pitchers in San Francisco. Uh, another thing, though, that's helping, and this is a concern to me when I look at it, is a 21% hit rate. We usually expect uh, ground balls to slip through for hits a little more regularly than fly balls do, and uh, his first three months of the season, 31, 32, 32, which is fairly normal for a ground ball pitcher, this month in July, 21% with an 84% strand rate. Those numbers are way out of whack. And if they correct back, then you're going to see uh, Chris Heston return to something more like May, which was a 450, 130 line. Right, very definitely. Those are those, And that correction is, I think, certainly coming. That, that hit rate is not likely to sustain at that level, as you said, uh, with a ground ball pitcher. And finally, speaking of starting pitchers, our starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist is Stephen Nickrand, and Stephen wrote a column about uh, base performance value surgers. These are pitchers who are showing uh, improving base performance values, and uh, base performance value, if you're not familiar with the idea, is a is a uh, formula that combines all of the skills of pitching, home runs, ground balls, strikeouts, walks, etc. And one of the names on the National League list that Stephen came up with as a base performance value surger was Arizona starter uh, Jeremy Hellickson. Now, Jeremy Hellickson is a guy that's probably available in, in a lot of leagues because his, his surface numbers are not very good. Uh, at this point, a 4.870 ERA for the season, a 1.33 whip, uh, earned a total of a minus $4 so far in uh, in roto value. Um but, but Stephen's right. If you look at, if you look at what he's done month by month, there's something going on here. A 52 BPV in April, a 63 BPV in May, 132 in June. And that's when, that's the, the end point of what Stephen was writing about. But July, that BPV is up to 142. And the numbers have started to turn around in July. Uh, ERAs in uh, April, May, and June of 5.24, 4.98, 6.0. But so far in three Ju- July starts, 2.50 and a 3.01 XERA. So there's some real skill beginning to show in Jeremy Hellickson. Uh, and he's a guy who could begin, if he can sustain what he's doing right now, uh, could be a real surprise in the second half. It's a very inconsistent skill set all the way around. The, the uh, fly ball, ground ball mix bounces around crazily. His... Uh, uh, strand rate and uh, hit rates bounce around crazily. And, and in May, this is really weird. He had a 25% hit rate and a 65% strand. So he wasn't allowing a lot of hits, but more, a lot of them, too many of them were scoring 62% in June. And he was giving up a ton of home runs. All of a sudden in July, his home run per fly ball rate has collapsed, which is a bit of a warning sign from 13% down to six. Uh, there's a lot of good here, but there's also a lot to be concerned about. This is not a slam dunk uh, op- operation here. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is not a slam dunk. We're not talking about a, a young pitcher. We're talking about a guy who's 28 years old. Uh, and that kind of variance, of course, is, uh, is more concerning. 
uh, as you've got a guy with the kind of experience that Hellickson's had. You know, we talked about uh, uh, back about Jason Mott and uh, does he know what he's doing right now? This is even more applicable, I think, to Jeremy Hellickson. Uh, is this just a, just a, a variance of some kind, a random variance, or is, is he on to something? And he, he'll only sustain it if he's on to something. Nonetheless, when you say something like that, if you're sitting in sixth spot and you need to make a some kind of move, Jeremy Hellickson might be out there. It could be worth a gamble. I don't know if I'd do it if I was in first place, but I might do it if I was in fifth or sixth and looking for some kind of uh, immediate short-term help. Yeah, he could be a, it'd be an interesting gamble for in the short term. Uh, and and uh, if your roster rules especially allow you to bench him or to dump him, if in fact uh, he reverts suddenly to his April performance. Look into it, make some decisions, but uh, do it wisely. Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. This is always fun. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn it over to the American League and the BaseballHQ.com co-speculator, columnist, and director of news and analysis. It's Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. Hi, PD. Good to be here. So with the trade deadline approaching, we've already seen a couple of shoes drop. Houston acquires Scott Casimir from the A's for a couple of prospects. Uh, You covered this in uh, Playing Time Today, and you actually covered the likelihood of Houston doing this in Playing Time Tomorrow a little while back. So first, maybe tell us, how does this deal look for Scott Casimir? That's the most important thing. Yeah, um, the Astros had a real obvious need at the top of their rotation, uh, uh, given the issues that, uh, that they have after Dallas Keuchel. And Casimir was uh, was a pretty obvious choice. Um, I think most on balance, this is positive for Casimir. He's going to get uh, better offensive support, a much better bullpen, and better defense as well. But it's interesting if you look at his home and away splits this year. He had, believe it or not, a 1.36 ERA at home at, at very uh, pitching friendly. Oakland and a very pedestrian 3.92 on the road and Houston's a much better hitters park than Oakland is Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Well I'm going to be talking with Todd Zola in just a few minutes about the park effects and how they affect the uh, various park uh, principles in in trades that happen and how we need to react to those park effects and uh, my question for him is going to be basically park effects are aggregated that is that they we look at everybody who plays in those parks and then we determine whether right-handed power is affected, left-handed batting average and so forth. But that doesn't necessarily mean that an individual player is going to follow along with that crowd because it is an average. Uh, who gets bumped? Well, as I noted in my uh, my column um, recently, Houston hasn't been operating with a fixed number five. Uh, they've been rotating names in and out for a while. Uh, with Casimir board, uh, the rotation looks set. He's going to slot behind Keuchel with McHugh, Scott Feldman, and outstanding rookie Lance McCullers filling out the rotation. The most notable bump is going to be Vinny Velasquez, who is still an inexperienced rookie, but he's he's interesting. Um, um, he had a, a sub a sub four ERA. Uh, uh, he pitched well in his few starts. The other guys that are going to get bumped are guys like Ober, Brent Oberholzer, uh, Dan Straley, maybe Brad Peacock, all these guys that have picked up a few starts. Um, they could start in the event of injury again, but none of these guys have ever projected to be as particularly valuable uh, fantasy-wise anyway. I think uh, definitely adding Scott Casimir really helps Houston. I, I can see this rotation with Koikel and Casimir at the top. McHugh, you mentioned, maybe McCullers-Feldman at 4-5, 5-4, who knows, but... It, 
it's a, it really does shore up Houston very well. Yeah, I think it does too. I still look at them as the favorite uh, in the uh, AL West. Um, I think they're going to try to tinker with their offense a little bit. It's still a little bit uh, home run and strikeout prone, so it'll be interesting to see what they do in the next week. Meanwhile, Oakland looks like they go into full-on selling mode. What did they get back in the way of uh, prospects when they traded Scott Casimir to Houston? Well, nothing of immediate interest that's interesting because this is a, a two-month rental uh, uh, for um, uh, Casimir uh, by Houston. Um, but Jake Nottingham is actually one of Houston's better, uh, was one of Houston's better uh, prospects. He's a power-hitting catcher with some defensive questions. Not everyone is convinced he can stay behind the plate, but he's a 20-year-old in A-plus right now, so he still has some time. Probably not fantasy-relevant this year. The other piece, Daniel Mangdon, looks like a number 5 starting pitcher, a bullpen piece with some pitchability. He's also in high A, so again, nothing uh, for fantasy owners to rush out and acquire. And uh, what do you think uh, this says about what Oakland is going to do? They've got a lot of guys on that roster that have been the subject of trade rumors already. Can you see them really getting rid of a lot of a lot of players at this point? Yeah, I mean, particularly uh, Ben Ben Zobrist. Um, I think he's he's the kind of guy. He's he's versatile. And a lot of the com- competing clubs are looking for guys who can do a lot of things, play a lot of positions. I think I think Zobris is a very good candidate to go. Tyler Clippert is another one that's mentioned a lot, although I think closing-wise, it's it's pretty much a buyer's market right now. So it'll be interesting to see if they can get anything for him. Yeah, you'd wonder. Uh, and everything else on the, on the team, they look like they have some pretty good control, some pretty good salary, so there's no reason to suspect like uh, anybody else unless maybe they, somebody wants to make a play for uh, Ike Davis or somebody like that. But you don't think there's any chance that they would repeat what they've done in years past and trade Sonny Gray, for instance, even though he's well uh, well ahead of his uh, big salary bump? I kind of doubt it, I think, just because uh, Oakland's pretty lean right now. They don't have a lot of frontline players, um, and particularly they don't, they don't have a lot of major league-ready uh, AAA guys. I think the guys they're going to they're gonna trade – Guys like Casimir and Zobrist and Clippard who are in the last year of their contracts and there's no way they're going to be signed by Oakland this offseason. Also, of course, with uh, Scott Casimir gone, somebody has to take his innings in the Oakland rotation. Rod Truesdell commented on these ripple effects. Who gets Casimir's innings and what happens in the Oakland rotation? Well, Drew Pomerantz took over Casimir's Thursday start. He had, he had been expected uh, to start against Toronto, Casimir uh, had. Pomerantz's effectiveness in the bullpen suggests this may have just been a spot start. Uh, Arnold Leon t- uh, came up and, and to take uh, Kazmir's roster spot. He's been a triple-A starter, but I'm not sure whether he's going to get uh, uh, Kazmir's uh, old rotation spot. There's some possible moves here. They have Barry Zito in triple-A. Currently, uh, Barry has a 3.54 ERA, uh, 79 to 50 uh, strikeouts to walk over 102. 122 innings pitched. Obviously, he's not what he used to be, but I think Oakland is just looking for a stopgap right now. I'm thinking 79.50 strike strikeouts to walks. That's not good in AAA, and it's going to get worse in the majors, you'd think. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't be rushing out to acquire Barry Zito. All right, in Anaheim, uh, David Freeze is going to be out for at least three weeks. He's got a non-displaced fracture, which is the good kind if you're going to have one, of an index finger. He got hit uh, by a pitch. This seems to be happening a lot to me. I don't know, maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like we're getting a lot of these injuries. You looked at the situation uh, with uh, David Freeze going to the DL. Who gets his roster spot, and more importantly, who gets his playing time? 
Well, the Angels called up left-handed hitting Kyle Kubitsa to take the roster spot. Uh, and I think at least for now, he and utility infielder Taylor Featherston project to take over uh, freezes at bats and what, what looks like primarily a platoon. Maybe Kubica gets the, the bigger the bigger portion of the, the at-bat since he's a left-handed hitter and he might be a little better than Featherston. Anything can happen over a small sample, but I certainly don't think either of these names projects well fantasy-wise. Uh, Kubica was 6 for 29 with a 55% contact rate in his first major league go-around last month. While uh, Rule 5 bench player Featherston, he has intriguing physical skills, but he doesn't have any AAA experience. He's had to stay on the Angels, obviously, because he's a, he's a Rule 5 guy. And he's got a 63% contact rate, 6% walk rate, 9 for 67 to date. Uh, I wouldn't want to try any of these guys fantasy-wise. I wouldn't be surprised if the Angels look for a third base upgrade in the trade market over the coming week. Yeah, at the start of the year, I was going to say nobody would have thought the Angels or the Astros was probably going to be a big contender for the American League West, and here they are a game apart, and they, the Astros have fired the first warning shot at the Angels, and with uh, without a third baseman, the Angels are going to be in trouble. Is there anything they can do on the trade market to respond to Freeze's injury, maybe shore up that third base spot? Well, it's interesting. One of the names that I thought about, and this is, again, all just conjecture. I haven't read anything about this. Lonnie Chisenhall is now in AAA for Cleveland, kind of suggesting that the Indians have pretty much given up given up on him. He's a left-handed batter. He has experience. He can play third base. The Angels could probably put him at DH uh, occasionally when once Freeze comes back. I think that's something that the Angels ought to, ought to pursue. And, and interestingly enough, one-time um, number one prospect, Caleb Coward, is enjoying kind of a resurgence at AAA. Uh, he's hitting well over 300. Uh, Although not with a lot of power, his contact is down. You wonder how much Salt Lake City is inflating those numbers. And even though he's experiencing some success finally, I, I kind of doubt the Angels would want to test him at another level immediately. Over in Kansas City, Jock, another big story this week. They sent down Jordano Ventura, then Jason Vargas, who had just got back from the DL, uh, had to go back on the DL with uh, an elbow injury. That looks pretty serious, actually, Tommy John coming. Mike Sheard covered this because now Ventura has been called back. What are the Royals going to do to straighten out this rotation? And they need to do something. They're a good team, but their pitching is not strong. Yeah, they just demoted uh, Jordana Ventura, who had disappointed all season long, uh, 5.19 ERA. Interestingly enough, Ventura's BPIs are better than they were last year when he won 14 games and posted a 3.20 ERA. He currently uh, has a a 3.60 expected ERA, suggesting that he's been pitching into some bad luck. He's got a very tough... uh, 61% 61% strand rate, which indicates that he might be struggling from the stretch with runners on base. Uh, it's kind of interesting. The the Royals' best starting pitchers have been Edinson Volquez and Chris Young, uh, to your point about their rotation. Now, these are the only guys with sub-four ERAs. But um, like you've said, uh, right now, uh, Ventura's back up. Um, they got a couple of other names. Chris Medlin, uh, he's up and attempting to round into shape in long relief after returning from Tommy John, but he's struggled for a while. John Lamb is another story, uh, another injury comeback story in AAA, trying to work his way up. Uh, he's done well there. There might be some opportunity here, but these are all watch list guys for now, fantasy-wise. They have that awesome bullpen, but a rotation of, you know, Edenson, Volquez, Danny Duffy, Jeremy Guthrie, Ventura, Chris Young, guys like that. This doesn't sound like a playoff team. They may be able to get into the playoffs, but it doesn't sound like the kind of team that's going to make a deep run once you start facing nothing but solid offenses uh, in the playoff rounds. 
No, you're right. And, and maybe some of these names can, can, uh, can work through five innings before the KC bullpen can come into play. But uh, you sure, there's no one that you can certainly trust there. Uh, their rotation uh, is in bad shape. And uh, I kind of look for them to try to see what's on the starting pitching market over the next week as well. Do you think, though, the problem with the Kansas City Royals trying to chase down a reasonably decent starter in the market, I'm talking about a Cole Hamels type guy or a, or a Johnny Cueto type guy, is that their, their ownership is still fairly chintzy with the payroll and they just might not be willing to spend that kind of dough? Yeah, I do. Um, that's, that's an interesting point. Uh, uh, the market, particularly if the Tigers are really in the market and, and David Price, uh, who's going to be a free agent, uh, the, the starting pitching market is 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 fairly ample right now. I think they could find something, but uh, they're going to have to give up something. They're going to either have to eat salary or give up some very good prospects. So it'll be interesting to see if Kansas City does anything. And finally, Jock, some changes going on with the White Sox where they designated Connor Gillespie, who's been around for a while, and have pretty much said to, to Tyler Saladino, a rookie, the third base job is yours, kid. Uh, have at it. Uh, Mike Shears covered this at BaseballHQ.com. What's going on with Connor Gillespie, Tyler Saladino, and the White Sox hot corner? Gillespie had, has always looked like a stopgap as the starting third baseman from day one. Uh, if you look at his numbers, uh, uh, 237 batting average this year, three home runs, over 173 at-bats. The change wasn't a surprise. Uh, Saladino doesn't project terrific upside, but... Uh, uh, but in late July, and particularly in deeper leagues, sometimes fantasy owners are just looking for a guy who's getting playing time and producing a little. And actually, he's doing that in the early going. The cell is a pretty decent hit place to hit in the warm months. He's got a couple of home runs uh, in uh, his first uh, 39 at-bats. Interestingly enough, his minor league numbers and call-up reports suggest that he has good plate skills and a, and a pretty decent base running game. He has 25 stolen bases at AAA, was only caught twice. But uh, subpar power in addition to his good positional versatility. And then you look at his performance through his first 39 at-bats. He doesn't have any, uh, any stolen bases, no walks, uh, in addition to the two home runs and, and uh, all but one game at third base. And this kind of illustrates the problems with a small sample projection. It's really kind of kind of difficult to see where he goes from here. Right. It's one of those deals where, you know, I remember back in the early days when I was just starting out in this game where you'd see a guy like this and you'd grab him off your waiver wire after he had, you know, four home runs in a week and seven RBIs and a couple of bags and hit 390. And of course, that was his high point for the whole season. And then you put him on your roster and he proceeded to go, you know, zero for his next 60 and, and didn't have any home runs, RBIs, nothing. So you got to be real careful with these rookies. He could have just had a nice little hot streak and, and nothing more. Yeah, that's right. One thing I think in his favor, along with his positional versatility, um, I was looking at his minor league numbers uh, this morning, and Saladino has been making uh, progressively better contact as he's come up the ladder. And through 39 at-bats, he's making, I think, 85 86% contact. So if he can do that, who knows? Maybe he gets lucky. Uh, maybe he gets a, some good hit rate bounces. Uh, maybe he hits a few home runs in the cell. Um, again, it's, it's, it's all a guess over two months. It certainly is that. Jock, thanks a million for talking with us, and we will catch up with you again next week at the deadline. Okay, PD, see ya. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Speculator column rotation at the site. And, of course, he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our regular weekly talk with Todd, it's Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. They're waiting for the numbers to change. There it goes. Cal Ripken comes out, raises his arm with a cap, and here is the ovation that he gets. Baseball HQ Radio. 
Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com updates its content every day across a wide range of great information to give you everything you need to succeed, like our Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage, which recently covered Buster Posey, Jim Johnson, Wilson Ramos, and many others. There's our Playing Time Today and Playing Time Tomorrow, this week featuring in-depth coverage of the Aramis Ramirez deal, as well as potential changes in the Cubs bullpen, and a lot more. And we have an HQ Vault piece, digging into the archives, for an article about the fallacy of making trades that help both teams. And that's barely lifting the lid on the treasure chest of information available at BaseballHQ.com. We also have daily matchup reports, a daily game dashboard, team coverage, minor league scouting, and much more. And we have those great tools like state-of-the-art projections you can customize for your league and other roster management systems you can use to help you dominate your seasonal league or daily fantasy. It's all there only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is BaseballHQ.com. Now, before we get to our talk with Todd, a little bit of breaking news affecting some of what we talked about with Jock Thompson on our American League Beat coverage. Jock discussed Connor Gillespie being demoted by the White Sox and the Angels' need to replace injured third baseman David Fries. Well, the Angels have just signed a replacement, none other than Connor Gillespie. So there you go. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined once again by Todd Zola, contributor to ESPN, Masters Ball, Fantasy Alarm, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Really good to be back, Patrick. I, I haven't been traded yet. Yeah, you're, you, neither have I, and uh, we, we might be uh, two of a few by the end of the week with the trade deadline coming up, and we're going to talk more about that in just a second. But we have seen two pretty big trades. I talked earlier with Jock Thompson about Scott Kazmir going to Houston. I talked with Harold Nichols about uh, Aramis Ramirez moving to Pittsburgh. And, of course, the change of venue should, we would think, have some kind of effect on these guys' performance and uh, before we get into the abstractions of it, uh, what do you think about Casimir going to Houston? How does it affect his uh, potential? It's going to be interesting because, uh, you know, I'm going to, for, for, for a moment, I'll, I'll put aside my, my diatribe about I'm not exactly sh- sure how important park factors actually are. But on paper, uh, it's actually a pretty big change, especially when you figure Casimir has worked his entire career in pitchers' parks, be it from Tampa uh, to uh, to the Angels, and that year in Cleveland, and now in Oakland, he's always worked in a big park. So we don't often talk about the the mind games, the psyche of the game, but you sort of have to wonder what it's going to be like for him to now be working in a park that's very favorable to home runs, that's very favorable to offense. Is it gonna? Is he is he a veteran and he's just gonna get up there and throw the ball, or if he gets lit up in his first game or two, is this gonna get into his head and is it gonna be an issue? So that's gonna be interesting to follow. Although he does have Dallas Keuchel there, a fellow left-hander, uh, as I like to say, to show him the way. So I I I think Ky- I think Kazmir will be fine, but it's sometimes you know it's fun to at least think about these other things, like not ignore the numbers, but put them aside and then try to you know. What, what the person will do in the park. And I, there's a potential for some issues, but I think it'll be positive. 
since his uh, season-ending injury in 2011, and he didn't pitch at all in 2012, when he came back to the big leagues, he had really changed his approach. He, he had been somewhat of a balanced pitcher with a slight lean towards fly balls. He was around 49-48% uh, back in the 08-09 period. And then uh, since he's been back, his number has been down in the mid-30s, and he's 34, 34% this year in fly balls, and 46% ground balls, a career high. It could be, you could argue, that with Houston's fine infield defense, he might actually benefit here because he's not throwing that many fly balls to have home run issues. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting. You you note the the, the, the switch in the ground ball fly ball ratio. His velocities pretty much stayed the same throughout that entire uh, stretch. So it, it's it's he's throwing the ball down a bit more. He's changed his repertoire a bit as well. He's become a you know after the injury a different pitcher to stay healthy, not have as much torque on his arm and more of a uh, command control guy than a fireballer. And you're right, I do think that the uh, the trending upward of ground ball will will play very well. And that's an excellent point too with the uh, with the improving Houston defense that uh, you know he he wasn't able to take advantage of the vast Ococ. Oco Coliseum and and having them chase down all those fly balls like some of these other pitchers, you know, as we say, fly ball pitchers in big parks can be good. So yeah, I think that's a that's an, an interesting point about Casimir how that could uh the, the the his style plays well in that park. It does create uh, this is an opportunity I think where you can use perceptions to create arbitrage opportunities for you by saying to your potential trade partner who has Scott Kazmir, who I think is a trade target, frankly, coming to a, a clearly a better team, and I think this ground ball tilt with the infield defense I mentioned gives him a lot of plus that I really like, but you could say to a guy, boy, Kazmir moving to that uh, band box in Houston, he's going to be giving up runs plenty. now's your chance to get rid of him, and I think people will listen to it because of the general amount we tend to overestimate park effects insofar as they affect individual players rather than big aggregate numbers. Right now, I what I found is sometimes you have to be careful with how you phrase those sorts of things because then the other guy says, geez, why if if he's such a such a bad option you know, potential pitcher, why does he want him so badly? So you have to find sort of a you know, a passive aggressive way to get that point across and you know, well, I'm not going to ask for this guy because he's really good, but, you know, this guy's not as good as I need to, you know, to, and, and back. You know what? I guess I'll take Kazmar, even though, I'll accept Kazmar, even though he's probably not going to be as good as he was in Oakland. You know, temperate, something like that. Get, get the thought in his head, in her head, that there's going to be a, a decline, but don't make it look like, you know, you, that's your target. And, you know, I'm, I'm, t- you know, I think there's sometimes a way to you know, be cute about it. I think you have to. I didn't mean to say that you say, give me Scott Casimir and he sucks. Right, right, <laughs> right. Obviously, the guy's going to go, if he sucks, why do you want him? But I think, yeah, you can approach it by saying, you know, give me uh, Felix Hernandez off your team. And he thinks, well, I don't want to give you Felix Hernandez, but I do really want your Albert Pujols. So would you take Scott Casimir? You think, well, you know, then you can use it to your advantage by playing on the perception that Scott Casimir's in some kind of park-related trouble. And then maybe you can winkle a draft pick out of him or a minor league or some kind of sweetener even though Casimir is perfectly acceptable to you. Right, right. Just put the thought in his head that there could be a decline coming. So, uh, yeah, no, that's it's, that, it's, it's, it's a fun trading. I don't trade. All my leagues aren't trading because I would never get anything done. 
the the couple that are I try you know you want to be able to do negotiations of this nature uh, and the, you know it's it's kind of fun to get away from the the stats once in a while and just kind of good old horse trading. Aramis Ramirez goes to Pittsburgh uh, from Miller Park in Milwaukee, which is plays as something of a hitter's park to Pittsburgh, which definitely doesn't. Again, uh, what do you think of Aramis Ramirez as a trade target? Uh, how is this going to affect his ability to put up some numbers? Yeah, well, you know, the old the old park effect thing here, too. You know, on paper, it's huge. Uh, it's a big difference in that uh, Pittsburgh crushes power and Milwaukee really embellishes it. Now you break this down to what do we, you know, eight, ten weeks that we have, and if, the, if a difference of maybe six or seven homers over the season is now two or three, you know, is well within the range of, of general variance. You know, yeah, on paper, Ramirez probably should lose a couple homers, but who knows what's actually going to happen? I think what's more interesting with with Ramirez, and you know, we we like to keep up with the the advanced stats and and what's come across Twitter. This week is that Ramirez is amongst the leaders the past several months in uh, velocity off the bat, which I guess is the new line drive rate, how hard you're hitting the ball, which I think is a, is a good thing. Uh, the, they're showing that the, the higher the velocity off the bat, the more likely of getting a hit. And it only, you know, obviously it stands to make, stands to reason, but it's always nice when, when intuition actually turns out to be factual when you look at the data. So that's a positive thing. But the, the question, as always with Ramirez, is, is he going to stay healthy? Is this going to, you know, is this going to continue? Um, don't know for sure. I, I'm not running out to get Aramis Ramirez at this point. I probably like him the same as I did before in that he, if he's my corner infielder on a mixed team, I'm okay with it because when he's healthy, he produces. But you always need to have an exit plan because he's he's up there in age and has been known to get hurt. So it's it's a nice trade. I think it's will help Pittsburgh. It's the kind of trade that a team like Pittsburgh needs to make. But I don't think it's going to really impact any fantasy leagues hugely, mainly because it's still a national league to national league deal. And even with the park, uh, I mean, if this, if Ramirez owner is now scared and and wants to get rid of him. Uh, third base is such a, a cesspool that if, if he's willing to deal him, I will take him in a trade, but I'm not expecting him to do any better. It's just he could be better than the corner infielder or third baseman that I'm, you know, Casey McGahee type that I'm using now. There's also, uh, and this is something that gets off of statistics and all of the analysis that we usually do, but he's moving, Ramirez is moving from a situation in Milwaukee where they were playing out the string and they're a bad club, and it's got to be depressing to go out there and lose as often as they lose. I listened to a game the other night, uh, Milwaukee was playing Arizona, and I was listening to the Milwaukee audio feed on uh, XM Radio, and even the announcers sounded sad, <laughs> you know, like this is going nowhere. And oh my gosh, we've got two more months of this before we can all just grab the golf clubs and head for Florida. And all of a sudden, Ramirez gets into a situation where he goes from that into getting back to his old stomping grounds, as Harold Nichols said earlier, and into a pennant race. And you wonder if maybe that little jolt of excitement is a plus but it's so nebulous and psychological i don't know does it have any place in our calculations about these guys i think it does and i haven't it's sort of my own little uh project that i kind of follow my own i haven't published it or, or looked at it yet but what i'm finding is players that normally steal a goodly number of bases don't steal them on on years when the team isn't doing so well now stolen bases is more of an effort 
sort of stat then i mean it's a skill stat but it it takes effort because you need to you need to exert yourself for a whole whatever it is three seconds to run really fast from one base to the next and i'm finding that 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 players steal less now some guys uh, you can use the narrative they just want to pump up their stats but in general i'm finding that now you know extending that you know can it can it be mental sure i absolutely think that uh, being in the in the throes of a pennant race or a wild card race or whatever you might want to say a, pl- a playoff race for Pittsburgh could definitely uh, influence Ramirez and and you know the mindset and and you know you can't it's not like a, a physical sport where you can go out and and you know take it out on you know hit somebody harder because it's a re- a revenge sort of thing but I do think in baseball it is such a, a mental grind that if you're in a better frame of mind you're you're probably going to produce it at a at a higher rate and I think Pittsburgh from all accounts is is a, a good place to play it seems to be a, a fun the, the team gets along they're you know, I haven't heard about a whole lot of bad apples. Uh, they love their manager, that the whole nine yards there. So I think it's, uh, you know, and when you got a team that's got Andrew McCutcheon as its leader, you know, you're not going to be called upon uh, in that regard. To, you know, your experience will be looked upon in the in the in the clubhouse, but you know, you're not going to be the one that has to answer all the questions to the reporters after the game, that sort of thing. So he could just blend right in, and uh, you know, the last hurrah, go for that, go for that World Series ring. Uh, you know, back where he started, I think it'd be a fun thing. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, talking with Todd. It's Todd Zola from ESPN and uh, Masters Ball and Fantasy Alarm. And speaking of Fantasy Alarm, Todd, and talking about park effects, you had a column not long ago at Fantasy Alarm bemoaning the whole focus on park effects. Uh, tell us what your concern is when we start talking about this this big concept. Yeah, this is kind of a, it's sort of a, a push me, pull me. We've talked a lot, and I've done a lot of research for you uh, when you were the research director at Baseball HQ on on park effects. And and but yet in my in my head and in my heart, I know that there's there's something wrong with them. But yet we we rely so much on them, and it's just kind of a weird thing how we can be so reliant on something that I feel are, are so variable and, and unreliable. Uh, you know, but, you know, take that away and, you know, the numbers are the numbers and I've learned that, or not so much learned, but I've accepted that it's better to use them than it is not to use them. But, you know, this is, uh, it's being brought upon by the, by DFS, by the daily game, uh, because so much analysis is so once uh, this pitcher's in a bad pitcher, a bad hitter's park, or this hitter's in a good hitter's park, and, we're making decisions based upon the park, and I think it, I'm not exactly sure if we're we're overemphasizing parks. So that's kind of where the whole germination of the article came in. Uh, but um, I've got some interesting data where the uh, just showing a park, they're just up and down. They're just all over the place, and how we can you know say a park's going to play a certain way. Oftentimes, you know, we'll average a three-year number and call it a 103, where is in fact none of those three years that we're averaging, the park was even near 103. It was above or below it, and just that's the average. But yet, the following year, we feel that that's what it, what the player is going to do. So it's just, it's just, you know, I understand why we need to use the average, but it just bothers me that uh, you know we do, and, and how much of our decisions are based upon. A number that is probably going to end up to be wrong, uh, but yet we use it anyway. <laughs> I know I'm going in a circle here because that's what's been happening in my head for the past ten years. So, uh, 
but at least so far anyway, um, the the first piece was just kind of explaining this whole, just laying the groundwork in that, you know, I use Park Effects in my work. I'm going to continue to use it, but I'm going to sort of think out loud over the next few weeks on, on Fantasy Alarm, explaining all these different, you know, all the different, you know, not just talking about the numbers, but showing them, showing what I mean about the runs and home runs and how they're all over the place. And yet we come down and we use this static number at the end of the day. It reminds me of the story uh, that when you're talking about averages and the and the parks being anything but the average, uh, uh, the 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 story goes, uh, you know, you, me, and Bill Gates are standing in a room. The net worth average of the three guys in the room is twenty billion dollars, but doesn't doesn't necessarily mean we're, we should be running out buying Rolls Royces anytime soon. My issue with the uh, with this idea, not only of the average versus the the actual swing or variation, is. When I look at park factors, what I see is an average not only of the park over years, but of the players in the park over those years. And so we say that Petco Park doesn't play well for whatever right-handed home run hitters or whatever the case is. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to affect every right-handed power hitter in precisely the same way. And there could be guys, and there are guys, we know this, who when you lay the uh, where their fly balls land are going to be hitting them out of every park or not hitting them out of any park because uh, the uh, each individual is different but we aggregate the results and then we say because you know uh, uh John Carlos Stanton hits them out of here everybody hits them out of here and that's not true you know we have to look at these players as individuals and the the setting that they're in by using park factors it seems to rely too heavily on on an average right not just that um uh, certain players you know, pull the ball, certain players put the ball to the alleys, and that, I, you know, I think I read at one point that AT&T was designed to favor Bonds and hurt everybody else because they just knew Bonds was able, he pulled the ball just enough to put it into the drink, whereas the the construction of the park would kill everybody else. Not everybody could pull the ball with the power that Bonds could and take advantage of it, so it, it depends where you hit the ball. You know, there was a year that Mark Loretta hit 10 homers in Petco, and I think every single one of them were 10 feet within the foul pole right down the line, where it's fairly short. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't exactly putting them out in, you know, left center field wall or whatever. It's just, so not only does, you know, each, the park influence each player individually. So yeah, you're right. We, you know, not only can, you know, Giancarlo Stanton going to hit the ball out of any park, but, we will we'll treat a pool hitter the same, you know, the same way as we do a guy that hits the ball in the gaps. It goes up the middle. Um, you know, the, when you have the time to work on a granular basis and look at each player, there, there are hit charts out there, there are spray charts out there that will enable you to do the research on particular players. But those of us that have to produce, you know, a projection, uh, an anticipation for 700 or 1,000 people, don't really have the time to look at all all thousand of them on an individual basis. We have to rely upon something as like the park effect and hope that over the global good, it makes the number a little bit better than it would if we didn't use them. I understand that, but it feels to me like the drunk who's looking for his keys underneath the streetlight, even though he lost him in the alley because the light's better under the streetlight. The larger question, I, I think, also that... Uh, pops into my mind when we talk about this stuff is the, the 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 whole idea of valuation and averaging that seems to seep into everything that we do and and people 
I don't think often or fully understand that we are averaging, that we are aggregating, and that there are still going to be these huge swings between one player to the next. And I think that also applies really in DFS. And your column was actually about how to match park effect to DFS, and this is where you were really banging your head against the wall. The original impetus of the whole thing was back in April when the ball was flying out of Petco Park and... You know, people did the park factor calculation in the third week in April, and suddenly Peckwell Park's playing 130 for home runs, whatever, you know, 70 over the past couple of years. So my, my, you know, my question to myself was, are in-season park effects actionable? Are they real? Are they noise? Uh, you know, come, you know, I, I, I want to wait a little bit more than April, but, you know, if come August, it turns out that for whatever reason, Petco Park is playing more of a, Hitters Park, well, first of all, I don't want to stream Tyson Ross and Ian Kennedy and some of those guys as much as I did before. Plus, I, you know, I might, I might be more apt to use a hitter from the Padres, you know, so that, that was my question. And I wanted to wait a few months before I actually looked at the data. And what I, I'm going to publish this in it sometime in the next couple of weeks. What I found is, First half to second half park effects are just all over the place. We could say a park has 120 park factor over the course of the year, and it could have been 90 over the first half and 150 over the second half, and it's just variable from park to park to park. So I'm, I'm just, I don't think you can say after even half a year that a park has changed. Uh, you know, but the part that I also alluded to, I'll, I'll show this data as well, is if you correlate how a park actually plays that year versus what the park effect was, it's a better correlation than if you use an individual year, but it's still not a a terribly great correlation. It's just, you know, the, the park effect that we use to anticipate how a player would do, I think it did better than if we used nothing, but it still, it doesn't get us there. It doesn't, doesn't it get us there because we just don't know what that one year's park what it's going to be. And then you factor in what you said before, it's not uniform for all the players. And, you know, going back to DFS, I just wonder, is Park too high on our list of filters when we choose who to play in a lineup? Something else that you mentioned at Fantasy Alarm that was really interesting and dovetails in with what you were saying about how the Park effect, the Park factor can change within the season is the weather. You know, if you look at at a at a park in the especially in the northern part of the of the continent, you know, not Toronto so much because of the dome, but but perhaps even Toronto, but especially the outdoor um, cool weather parks, you know, that park might average 110 for home runs over the course of the year, but that's it's like you know maybe uh, 80 during the cold months and 140 during the warm months, and you're really missing an opportunity or missing a, a very important thing if you just play the whole year, if you anticipate and play your your strategy the whole year based on 110. Right now, you know the Wrigley Field is sort of famous for that, and that the the wind's blowing in in April and May and starts to blow out in the, in the warm summer months. That's part of what I'm doing is, you know, this is the way my mind works. I started trying to answer that simple question, you know, can I take advantage of Petco Park in August? And I suddenly have three folders worth of data. One of the things I'm looking at is I look at the park effect per year and I'm just using standard deviation is because it's the easiest number just to sort of look at to compare the variance of the parks and looking at the parks where the standard deviation is low from year to year 
and high from year to year and trying to determine if there's a factor such as you mentioned weather or you know something to that nature that we have something that we can use as a guide well this player is going to this park I trust the park factor more than he's going to this park uh, and I do think that at the end of the day there is going to be something to that that the more stable parks are going to be in with the warm weather climates where the weather is a little bit more controlled and or consistent which again it's intuitive but uh, you know not everything's not everything that's intuitive turns out to be correct so <laughs> we harp on that so i even be, just because intuitive and it's correct you know so what it it's important because there like i said there are times when what you think happened doesn't happen so it's kind of nice but yeah this all this will all be coming coming out in the next few weeks but um i'm still not uh I haven't made peace with park factors yet. They still, they still bother me a little bit, but we're getting there. What about the database of players that you find at Baseball Reference or Fangraphs? Uh, some other, maybe you know other places you have access to, to data stores that maybe some of us don't have. But you can find at BaseballReference.com, for instance, if you do up individual player splits, one of the splits that you're going to see on a career or year-by-year basis, your choice, is how does he hit in a particular park. So you can look up John Carlos Stanton, you can look up City Field, and you can see what his career has been like in that environment, and you can see what his what his uh, year has been like in that environment. But it the trade-off seems to be the sample sizes are necessarily quite small. Have you ever thought about that and what about the issue of sample size and how long it takes for stats to individual stats to level out? Yeah, I've thought about it and I do think it's one of those things that there are probably instances where so and so's a pull hitter in this park, you know, the fences start shallow and then jet out really far, that sort of thing. I mean, Fenway Park, the 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 right field fence the way that it juts out. So if you're more of a, a right-handed pull hitter, you you might be able to put some into the uh, right field grandstand, whereas if you're a straightaway hitter, it's going to be hard to put one in the bullpen. I haven't actually looked at it at that granular level yet. Uh, there are uh, park overlays, which we've talked about, that can help in this regard. And I think that once this this whole exit velocity off the bat and then trajectory and all that sort of stuff uh, keeps fleshing itself out and getting better and better. I think that's going to go away to determine as well. I and mean, literally someone's going to be able to measure the trajectory and the exit velocity and there's going to be a list that would have been a home run in this, 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 this park based, a, based upon strictly upon the trajectory and the angle and the, and the exit velocity. Um, you know, if a player is traded, from one park to, you know, actually the one I'm thinking is Aris, Aramis Ramirez went from the Cubs to Milwaukee. Uh, it was determined that using park overlay, that that was actually a bad move for him, even though Miller Park was on paper a better home run park than, than Wrigley Field. Uh, it was just sort of an interesting thing in that just the way that where Ramirez hit his homers, it looked to be not quite as a positive a move as, as some may think. So, yeah, there is something to that on a, on a player-by-player basis, but I, I don't trust the sample size and, you know, a, a three-homer game on a day you felt really well can really skew the numbers. So, yeah, um, I don't know. DFS change is changing the way we look at things, and I think over time we may learn a little bit more about it, but for now I'm still mostly seasonal-focused, 
and I'll look at the big picture. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, the Major League Baseball trade deadline is next Friday. Uh, How do you think fantasy owners need to prepare for the presumed flurry of activity, often nothing at all, but there may be some trades going on. What do we need to do to be as ready as we can for what goes on in the big leagues? Well, it depends upon your your leagues, obviously. If you're in a head-to-head format it probably matters a little bit more if you're expecting a a Cole Hamels or a Johnny Cueto uh to pitch for you and they get traded and they get to another team and uh perhaps they lose a start or they may even gain a start depending upon the pitcher and the situation i think you just need to be aware of potential repercussions if you're uh something i'm writing about right now uh doing the some work for ESPN this week is the, repen- the potential replacements for a Johnny Cueto or Cole Hamels or Jeff Samarja, if you're on top of that, now they may not be the greatest and they're all going to be working in a in a hitter's park. There's the park factor again. But uh, you know, Scott Carroll coming up for the White Sox or a, a Josh Smith coming up for the Reds could could help a team if they're in need of, of another starter to get some strikeouts. Now the Reds are presently using six starters, uh, they have a doubleheader, and they're using Singrani and, and Iglesias, so unless they trade both Cueto and Mike Leak, they're, they really don't need a replacement. They can just have everything just working just fine. Now, I don't really care who uh, comes up for Philadelphia. I'm really not interested in having them uh, be in my starting rotation. So no uh, matter who replaces Hamels, if he's dealt, is kind of moot to me. But it is good, you know. On the other hand, Ken Giles is a guy I wouldn't mind having stashed away in case Papelbon gets traded. So one of the things you can do is, is look at and hitters too. Uh, if a hitter is traded, who might, who's going to be the guy that comes up and picks up the playing time or moves up in the batting order or that sort of thing. So if nothing else, uh, don't worry about the player being traded. Try to figure out what the domino effect's going to be on other players. Also, there are effects to consider in terms of games played. Uh, Toronto, Tampa, Houston, Oakland, Phillies, and Los Angeles Dodgers have all played 97 games. And down at the bottom, the White Sox, Reds, and Rockies have only played 93. So any player moving from one of those teams to the other could gain or lose as much as four games. And for instance... There's a rumor that says Ben Zobris is going to be traded from Oakland to the Chicago Cubs. Oakland's one of those 97 games played teams, which means they have 65 to go. But the Cubs are down there at 94 games played, which means Ben Zobris basically gets three extra games in his season to contribute to the bottom line of his team and his fantasy teams. Yeah, now we talked a little bit of last week about my updated rankings, and I had some questions on rankings. And the answer was, this team's got five more games scheduled than this team does, and that could be 20 plate appearances, which is all you need to have this guy flip that guy. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, a factor. And with, with rainouts and the scheduling and everything else, we're down to, in the neighborhood of 60 to 70 games left, five games could be, you know, it's not quite 10%, but it's 8 or 9% of the last games. And I think it's a great way to, especially in a head-to-head, situation where a lot of teams are now either gearing up for the playoffs or once the playoffs begin the more games you have in a given week the the more stats you accrue obviously not you know not saying anything but anybody doesn't know and that could be a uh, a nice sneaky way to extract a few more points a few more you know uh, 
help in the standings by getting a player that's got another handful of games. Now, who knows if they're going to play them all or, and, and whatnot, but at least going in, they're scheduled to play more. And, of course, most fantasy leagues, Todd, uh, the smart ones anyways, set their in- internal league trading deadline a little bit after the major league deadline so everybody knows how the dust settles. So it, let's assume that the uh, major league deadline is on Friday, that the uh, subsequent deadline for most leagues will be sometime in the, in the following week. Uh, what can we do, do you think, to get ready for our own league deadline flurry? Well, it, yeah, in a in a redraft league versus you know a keeper league, it it it, it it's sort of it, it's different. Um, in a, in a redraft league, it all depends upon what your motivations are, what you need to do. I mean, in Tout Wars, I'm in last place, and but I need to do something because I need to save the amount of fab dollars I'm going to lose for next season. So I'm still looking to make moves. I'm still looking to make trades, and. You know, redraft league. It's it's managing the categories. It's finding which categories you can deal from to to lose the least amount of points to which categories you can gain the most points, so that the, the net result after the trade is more points, regardless of the players and the names and the stats and the and the value and the rankings or whatever you might use as your as your measuring stick. It ultimately comes down to points. So if this is the point of the season where Movement is possible within the categories because there's clumps of of closely bunched teams and there's there's rooms where there's 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 not there's big gaps between the teams. So you just need to figure out where you are within the distribution of your particular league and figure out ways to maneuver within the categories to get you the most points. Keeper leagues, different story depending upon your rules. You you know I you know I I think I've mentioned in the past in a redraft league. I'm hesitant to deal with a team leading the league, even if even if it helps me say in the Tout Wars get from last to second or third to last. Uh, I'd, I'd rather make a deal with somebody that is not going to influence the top of the standings. In a keeper league, I don't care. My goal is to win next year, and if that means I ended up helping the first place team fortify their lead or the second place team jump the first place team, uh, it's I'm unbiased about that. You know, the other team needs to make a trade with somebody else to to counter that. So in a in a keeper league, all bets are off. I'm looking to improve my stead for for next year and the years to come. I, I can't uh, say anything more about that except I would encourage anybody who's really planning on doing the uh, due diligence to set themselves up for the trading frenzy at the deadline in their league is this. Don't base your decisions on where the categories are now. Get your projections together and project the league out to the end. Be aware that there's going to be some variation, but the, if you project to have a 40 home run lead in the home run category, you don't need another home run hitter. Even if somebody offers you Albert Pujols for a sack of beans, it's useless to you. I mean, I'm assuming there's no other batting average effects or so forth. And conversely, if there seems to be any kind of bunching going on in any category, you have to be aware that that's where the points are, as Todd said. And I, I think it's really important to understand that if you're at the top of that bunch, you can't afford to feel comfortable about that. If you're at the top of a stolen base bunch with 88 stolen bases right now and you think to yourself, look at me, I've got 12 points in the category or something like that, look behind you in that projected total and see if it's 87, 87, 87, 86, 85 – 
you're not in the top of that bunch. You're just part of it. And there may be some uh, reason for you to, to focus on stolen bases because that's where the points are. Right. And again, you said, you know, what's done is done. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton may come back and help a team. So you need to factor that that team's A, been without him, and B, will be getting him back. Or the team in, that, that has D Gordon that's on the shelf, their stolen base pace is different with him being gone. Or even a team that has Billy Hamilton, now that he's down hitting eighth and, and ninth in the National League, his stolen base pace isn't the same as it might have been. So you you need to look at, you know, did the team just trade? Did the team just trade away uh, Jose Altuve for J- Josh Donaldson? So their home run and stolen base pace is different. So you, exactly what you need to do is is not just, you know, where, what's it right now is the starting point, obviously, but then you need to sort of figure out based on that and based at least upon present roster, const- roster construction what's going to happen going forward and try to make your moves accordingly, realizing that, you know, uh, a 10-point difference now is more of a 13 or 14 point difference or stolen ba- or stat difference because if you do prorate everything stays the same you have to prorate that the, the the remaining season and then factor in the differences in the rosters and I you know I keep saying and maybe maybe next week or the week after I'll have some actual numbers to help talk about this I keep saying too don't don't ignore the ratios don't ignore whip ERA and batting average and or on base percentage cuz depending upon where you are Within that cluster, it's there's actually more movement in those categories in September than there are in the counting stats. Yeah, that's well said. And and I would also caution, regardless of what system you use to project to the end of the season, I know some people just prorate, we're at 97 games now, so I'll divide my stolen bases by 97 times 162, and that's where I'll finish, ignoring all the other things that have happened in the meantime, which I think is fairly inaccurate. I use an actual spreadsheet I go through and I have all my players and I project the players separately and put them into everybody's roster. And then, you know, it's a lot of work. I'll grant you that. Most websites, I think, have a system that allows you to project the standings using some prearranged set of uh, database numbers. That's better, I think, than just prorating. But regardless of what method you use, be aware that it is highly variable and that you can't, you shouldn't make a deal, I don't think, to gain three points because you think the three points are going to move you past guys that are one or two ahead of you because you can't say with any certainty you're going to be one or two ahead at the end. You know, yeah, you're right. Now, the thing that you said that I think sticking most is it's a lot of work. You know what? Winning should take work. Winning shouldn't be easy. Work, doing the work in season should help you win you know the draft is important draft prep's important we all put a ton of work in but in-season work should be rewarded as, as well and it's that you know that little extra work that you put in it may have taken an hour and a half on a weekend but it may get you those two rotisserie points you needed and yeah an hour and a half on an arbitrary sunday and now for the next 365 days you can call yourself champion so you know, i think working takes you know winning should take uh, effort, you know, effort should be rewarded. And I think too many people don't want to put the work in, but yet, you know, they want to win. And, uh, you know, it's a two-way street. You need to put the work in. Well said, Todd. Uh, have you made any trades of late? I have uh, made a trade in uh, in Tout Wars. I think I talked about it. I, I traded um, uh, Alex Wood for Ian Desmond. Um I, again, I'm, I'm trying to 
I hate to say it, second year in a row, trying to salvage as many fab lost dollars as I can. Uh, and, and, you know, I, to, for those that aren't aware, what Tout Wars does as a means to try to keep you engaged and trying as hard as you can is they set a threshold of points at the 12 team league. The threshold is 60. It should be, it should be reachable. Uh, but for every point below 60, you're docked a fab dollar for the upcoming season. So right now I'm at around $10 to be docked. Any point I can gain, you know, fab dollars are important. Uh, I don't want to, you know, not to mention I don't want to finish in last. So I, I made a trade where uh, I, I feel that I'm better able to find potential replacements on the waiver wire for Alex Wood, disappointing than I am for Ian Desmond. You know, just just guys, you know, you know, Godly last night is another example of a pitcher who came up and dominated with, with really not so good minor league numbers. I picked up uh, Adam Morgan and Tim Cooney on uh, waivers the day out, the week after I traded Alex Wood, hoping to backfill for Alex Wood. Uh, that way, I couldn't pick up hitters to even come close to filling in for Ian Desmond if Ian Desmond does what I hope he does. So, yeah, that trade. In, in the XFL, which we talk about, I'm in a rebuilding mode. I've been making making trades all year and uh, trying again to um, – actually, that, remind, that that brings up an interesting point because in another league, well, fixing the XFL, just trying to uh, improve my stead. But I was, I'm in a league, an AL-only league, and it's my first year I've had to rebuild. I've been competing since I started playing in the league six or seven years ago. I finally had to rebuild, so I made a bunch of trades – uh, to get all sorts of draft picks and all sorts of minor leaguers. And then I was reviewing the rules just for, I forget why, and I read that I'm only allowed to keep X amount of these. I had maybe twice. So I basically made a bunch of trades not knowing that I'm not able to keep all these players. So the uh, take-home message there is know, the, know your rules, folks. I'm going to be able to consolidate. So I'm not really panicking about it. I'll be able to take a lot of these assets and, and, and upgrade. But I, you know, I went in, it's wrong of me to not know the rules, but I didn't know the rules and made a bunch of trades that some people that knew the rules are going, why'd he do that? He can't keep that guy. Why does he want a third round draft pick when he already has too many first and second round picks? So we'll, we'll, we'll see how that works out, but know, know your rules going in. Know your rules, always sound advice, Todd. Thanks very much for talking with us. Uh, we'll catch up with you again in a week's time at the deadline. Yeah, it should be. Uh, yeah, it should be interesting. We'll probably be following along as we speak. That's going to be a fun day. Todd Zola writes for ESPN.com. He appears every Friday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Stay with us. Our Friday commentary is coming up. Pitcher matchups and master notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you, so we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, Anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. 
and we look forward to hearing from you. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our regular Friday commentaries. I'll be coming up next with Master Notes, and right now it's our pitcher matchup report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers whose matchup ratings are plus 2 or higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers whose matchup ratings fall below 0. Everything in between is a risk-benefit analysis you'll have to do in the context of your own league. Now looking at Boston left-hander Eduardo Rodriguez hosting Detroit righty Alfredo Simon, Angels right-hander Andrew Heaney at home for Texas righty Nick Martinez, and more, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. It doesn't happen often, but this weekend we have an all-avoid matchup in the American League on Saturday. The starting pitchers with the two worst matchup ratings of the day, both negative numbers, face one another. Fans at Fenway Park may need to avert their eyes when Eduardo Rodriguez and Alfredo Simon take the hill. Out west in Phoenix on Saturday, we have a National League shootout between Young Guns Taylor Youngman and Ruby De La Rosa, even if it isn't at high noon. On Sunday, an American League rookie has the highest matchup rating of the weekend for his home start in Angel Stadium as Andrew Heaney squares off against Nicholas Martinez. Also on Sunday, last year's National League Rookie of the Year Jacob deGrom goes against Brett Anderson at City Field in New York. Stay away from both Eduardo Rodriguez of Boston and Alfredo Simon of Detroit on Saturday. Rodriguez started the season in fine fashion with three consecutive PQS 5s, but in seven starts since then, he has three zeros, two fives, and two threes for an average PQS score of just 2.3. He's had an unlucky strand rate of 66%, keeping his expected ERA just below four. But in those past seven games, Rodriguez has allowed 27 earned runs in 33 innings. In their past 10 games, the Red Sox have the worst record in the MLB, and they rank 28th in run differential, allowing nearly five runs per game while scoring only four. Meanwhile, Detroit is struggling to stay at 500 since Miguel Cabrera was injured. Simon overcame his lack of dominance in his first season as a starter last year with his career-best control. But this year, his first pitch strike rate has dipped to 54%, resulting in a whip of 148, and an earned run average and expected earned run average both around 450. Since a nice streak of five PQS dominant scores in six starts from May 12 to June 14, Simon has three PQS disaster scores in his past six starts. This one will be about as relaxing as Jurassic World if you have to start either Rodriguez or Simon. Taylor Youngman tries on his shiny new Sheriff's badge featuring the highest matchup rating of the day for his Saturday start in Chase Field against Ruby De La Rosa. Youngman has benefited from a hit rate of 25% and a strand rate of 81% over his eight rookie year starts, so his earned run average is a run and a half better than his expected earned run average. But he's posted PQS dominant scores in seven of those eight starts, including six in a row. Milwaukee ranks 29th against right-handers, but second for its 14 wins in the past 20 games and third for its 18 wins in the past 30. The D-backs are as cold as the Brewers are hot, with mirror image opposite one-loss records in their past 10, 20, and 30 games. 
De La Rosa has averaged a PQS score of 2.8 in his past 10 starts, but has been more effective at home. Still, it looks like Youngman should get his man in this one. Angels rookie left-hander Andrew Heaney is at home with the best matchup rating of the weekend on Sunday, the only one greater than three. And Rangers right-hander Nicholas Martinez should be no match for him. Heaney has four PQS dominant scores in his first five major league starts, and the only exception was a PQS three at Coors Field. He's been remarkably efficient, completing seven innings in four starts and six in the other, while never throwing more than 95 pitches per game and walking only four in 34 innings. With a hit rate of 23% and a strand rate of 88%, and an expected ERA twice as high as his ERA, he may not be quite as good as he seems, but he should be fine in pitcher-friendly Angel Stadium. The Angels are the absolute hottest team in the majors, winning 8 of 10, 17 of 20, and 22 of their last 30 games. Texas has been half as good, winning only 11 of its past 30 contests and ranking last in Major League Baseball over that span. Martinez has three PQS disasters in his past seven starts, though one was in Coors Field. Over 101 innings, he has 59 strikeouts and 36 walks. With an expected ERA of 4.63, Martinez is returning negative values for his Roto and 5x5 owners, so avoid him if you can. In the National League on Sunday, Dodgers southpaw Brett Anderson hopes to continue his surprising season and upset slightly favored Mets right-hander Jacob deGrom. After making 19 consecutive starts this season, Anderson tweaked his Achilles tendon in his last outing and may not be ready to go in this one, so be sure to double-check his status. He's allowed more than three earned runs only twice in those 19 starts. In 10 starts from May 14 to July 7, Anderson had five PQS dominant scores and no disasters. If he can answer the bell and stick around for his typical six innings, he may be worth the risk. The Dodgers are third in the majors against right-handed pitchers, but under 500 on the road and against teams over 500 like the Mets. New York has the second best home record in Major League Baseball, but is as bad as LA against teams over 500 like the Dodgers. DeGrom has earned his owners $28 in both Roto and 5x5 leagues this year with his base performance value of 141. In 120 innings, he has struck out 120 and walked only 21 and that's fully supported by an elite first pitch strike rate of 67% and a swinging strike rate of 13%. In his past 11 starts, DeGrom has 9 PQS 5 scores, and in his past 10 starts, he's lasted at least 7 innings 8 times. In a word, DeGrom is golden. So this weekend, avert your eyes from Eduardo Rodriguez, Alfredo Simon, and Nicholas Martinez. Be confident in starting Taylor Youngman, Andrew Heaney, and Jacob deGrom. And if you want a risk-reward play, consider Ruby De La Rosa or even Brett Anderson. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I want to talk about the common errors of in-season player valuation. I made a trade in my Tout Wars Mixed League last week, and not long after, I got an email to bhqradio at gmail.com, the Baseball HQ Radio podcast email address. 
That these two things occurred at roughly the same time could be described as coincidence or serendipity, or they could be described as ironic by someone who doesn't know what ironic means, like every baseball color announcer. Once I confirmed that Will in Connecticut wasn't a bot trying to get me to divulge my online banking password, I read with interest his detailed and fairly complex question about in-season player valuation. The topic was actually already on my mind because I had been making lots of trade offers in two different leagues. So here's what I wrote in my reply email. Dear Prince Akeem, I am interested in helping you get your $10 million out of Nigeria. Tell me more. Oh, wait, wrong email. I wrote, Dear Will, I've come to believe many fantasy owners who play category-based formats misunderstand or misapply the nature of value during the season. In particular, a lot of owners calculate the fairness of trade offers by first looking up the players' dollar values and then insisting that the combined dollar values of all the players add up to relatively equal sums. Here's the trouble. Like that John Nunnally rookie card you bought on eBay, a fantasy player has no actual dollar value once the auction is over and they start playing the games. The valuation in player spreadsheets has to apply to thousands of subscribers in thousands of leagues, and because it has to apply to all leagues in general, it doesn't apply to any league in particular. Most athletes enjoy a therapeutic massage, but it doesn't mean that if you happen to see your team's center fielder in line at Arby's, you should jump up and give him a neck rub. Context matters. No valuation system can know the gaps within the categories as they affect your particular team in your particular league at this particular moment. Any system has to assume that the gaps will be uniform. You get X amount of home runs, you gain a point. If you get four times that amount of home runs, you gain four points. But as we know, the gaps aren't uniform. Some categories bunch together like sleeping puppies. Other ones spread out like visiting in-laws. And as well, your own team's position within the category varies. In this environment, comparing players by a general dollar amount is pointless. The player's only value to you is how much he can move your team in the standings. There might be a little extra value in being able to brag that you drafted Paul Goldschmidt, although you have to factor in the potential cost of boring your dinner date. This is the critical point that a lot of owners miss when they're assessing trades and roster moves. By way of example, when I started thinking about trading this season, my first step was to look at my categories, project them out to the end of the year, and see where I could probably pick up points and where I couldn't. As it turns out, my team projected to win the home run category by 40 swats and to finish second in RBI, where I was 40 behind the leader and 40 ahead of the third place team. I wasn't moving in either of those categories. At the same time, though, I was in the low end of a clump of teams in stolen bases and in the low end of another clump in strikeouts. My tactic was to activate Austin Jackson from reserve to pick up his eight or nine stolen bases. That meant I had to trade an outfielder. My candidates were Nelson Cruz, a top-flight power source with no wheels. If he could steal bases, he'd be a full Nelson. I also have Gerard Dyson of the Royals, the exact opposite of Nelson Cruz. He gets stolen bases and nothing else. I wish he were an infielder, because then I could say how Dyson really vacuums up those grounders. Take that, Chris Berman. The Baseball HQ Custom Draft Guide, calibrated to the tout format, projected Cruz to be worth about 20 bucks and Dyson about 13 That's a $7 difference in Cruz's favor and seems to indicate that I should be trying to trade Dyson. 
But remember, Cruz's power wouldn't generate any points for me, while Dyson's projected 20 stolen bases could be worth up to 7 points in that tight stolen base category. So, he was actually worth hugely more in his actual effect on my standings. In fact, Austin Jackson might have been more valuable than Cruz as well. Overall, I needed Cruz like Kanye West needs assertiveness training. Now, Cruz did have value to me as a trade chip. Quite a few teams in my league could use Cruz's home runs and RBIs to make good gains in those categories. And if I was smart, I know, not a sure thing, I might even be able to put those gains onto teams that could pass my main overall competitors and help me indirectly. So I offered Cruz to a few teams who had stolen base surpluses. One owner in particular I thought had great potential to make a deal because his situation was the opposite of mine. He couldn't get points with his stolen base surplus, but he could gain big with power. But he wouldn't trade me his speedster for Nelson Cruz because according to the abstract valuation, his speedster was worth $27 while Cruz was worth only 20 so he insisted on getting another $7 worth of value. I couldn't afford to spend anything more, and a deal that should have been made didn't get made. Fortunately, as I said, the strikeouts category was also tightly bunched, and I saw a chance to get some points there. I found an owner who needed some power, and he had strikeouts to spare, and we swapped Cruz for James Shields one for one. Again, by the valuation alone, Shields was worth about $13, so on paper it looked like I was taking a $7 loss. But Shields' added strikeouts could move me 7 or 8 points in that category, and the owner who got Cruz could well pass the two guys I'm chasing in the overall standings. That's easily worth 7 completely artificial dollars, don't you think? Now there might be some math whiz somewhere who could take time out from online poker or crashing the international financial system and make an app to calibrate actual dollar value for a given player on a given team with a given position in all of the categories in a given league. But in the meantime, any generalized valuation system simply cannot give you an accurate assessment of real value for a player in season. You have to look at the categories and make your decisions that way. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. I'm a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 45 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of the show, Todd Zola. I always enjoy our weekly talk with Todd, and I'm sure you like it as much as I do. And I want to thank our other contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, and our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And we have our email address, bhqradio at gmail.com. Be the first to know when a new show is ready for download. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. 
Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four days when our Tuesday tout will be the fantasy Zen master, Lore Michaels, on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.